Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. Well, we are in our second week uh, of our three-week series called The Meaning of Marriage. And um, we jumped in last week, um, and we're going to continue today. So um, we're asking ourselves the question, uh, does it really matter how we define marriage? Uh, who's, who's to say what marriage is anyway? I mean, shouldn't two people who love each other be allowed to commit themselves legally to one another? What's wrong with same-sex marriage? I don't want a divorce, but I don't love my wife any longer. We drifted uh, out of love, and doesn't God want us to be happy? I mean, why uh, do I need a marriage certificate to love somebody? It looks like marriage is a disaster. Uh, I think it's okay just to live with someone. You should live with someone before they're married. We've got the whole thing on the table. We've got divorce and remarriage. We've got same-sex marriage. We've got cohabitation. Uh, a lot of issues out there. Polygamy, again, is back on the table. Who's to say how we are to live? What's the meaning of marriage? Now, our, last week, we began our study of God's meaning uh, for marriage. Unless you say, well, boy, that sounds pretty arrogant that you say you know what God's, God's meaning is. Well, um, I think the Bible declares what God's meaning is. It's not something I uh, made up. It's accessible to, to you. Uh, it's not the only position held in our culture today, obviously. Um, we're going to pick up the conversation right here and just remind you that I'm presenting the... Um, the position as defined by the Scriptures. Uh, we've committed, we've made several commitments uh, as a people, as a church, as individuals, uh, as we proceed in this series and as we live our lives uh, in our community and in our nation and in our world. We have committed not to vilify people who do not agree with us. That's not acceptable to God. That's not, that's, not, that's not decent and good behavior. We have committed not to believe that if I can just simply label someone or label their reasoning, then I have dealt with them and I have dealt with their reasoning. No, no, no. We will not label people. Uh, and we have committed not to shout our position at other people. It's not helpful. It's not good. And... Um, We've also, just to remind you, that this series of talks last week, this week, and next week is based on two assumptions. Remember, every presentation you ever hear, every book you ever read, every uh, sermon you ever listen to, every essay that you ever read or write or draft yourself, uh, all of those are based on some assumptions. And here are the two big assumptions of these talks just so you know where we're coming from. You ready? The first assumption is this, uh, biblical authority. Biblical authority. We value biblical authority. We believe that the Bible is the final authority on matters uh, of what we are to believe and how we are to behave, of our faith and our practice. Uh, the Bible does not speak to all issues, just as a reminder, uh, all ideas, all subjects, but where it does speak, we believe it to be God's word on the matter and that it speaks with final authority. That's assumption number one. Assumption number two is this. God has your best interest at heart. 
God has our best interest at heart, the best interest of our culture, of our community, of our nation and our world. Uh, As we sang in the song earlier, our God is fighting for us. God is for you. God is for people. He wants the best uh, for people in this world and uh, all around the world. And so we're also assuming that what the Bible says about God is true that he is altogether good, that he is all-knowing, that he is altogether wise. He is what the theologians call omniscient. He knows everything. He has total knowledge. He is very, very smart. This means that God knows what is best. He knows what is best for us in our world. And he, um, he, he, therefore, what he says in the Bible about marriage is best for our hearts, and best for our marriages and our relationships and best for our families and best for our church and best for our community and best for our nation, best for our culture and for the entire world. Now, I know that some could say, well, Pastor, but I don't believe the Bible is relevant any longer. I think it's an ancient book written for cultures multi-thousands of years ago. I reject its teaching on this subject. I understand that position. I understand that. I understand that. And I'm not so much... Uh, going to deal with your other position is I'm trying to just state clearly what the scriptures teach on this matter. Now, last week I said there was a third position that tries that, that attempts to reframe the teaching of scripture to say that um, that it allows for variations of marriage, that same sex marriage, and uh, and other kinds of marriage relationships. And um, I didn't take time to prove my case last week, and I'm not going to. Uh, I don't have time in this series. I'm not under the illusion that I'm going to answer all the questions or completely deal with this subject in three little talks. Okay, we're not going to exhaust this. But if you have questions, if you'll send them to me, I'll do my best to resource you once the series is, uh, is over. So last week, uh, we jumped into uh, this teaching. What does the Bible teach about the meaning of marriage? And here's what we discovered very quickly. I, don't have, I won't explain these. Uh, if you missed the message last week, you can go online to our website and uh, f- listen to the message there, or you can subscribe to our podcast and download that and listen to the message then. But here's what we saw so far from the Scriptures. God created marriage, therefore He gets to define it. And he's the only one who can define it. Number two, God created marriage heterosexual, not homosexual. Number three, God created marriage sexual. We got a big amen out of that and uh, rejoiced in that. And number four, God creates the marriage union. He is the one who performs the ceremonies. He's the one who brings men and women together and creates them as husband and wife. Now, we're going to pick it up here, and we're going to go to one big point today in this passage uh, that we've been looking at. One more big truth about marriage, and I want you to jot this down. God also created marriage to be permanent. God created marriage to be permanent. So, so right here in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 24, we run right into already, already the issue of divorce and remarriage. Uh, before we get out of the second chapter of the Bible, we run right into uh, this, this issue. So we're going to look at five key passages of Scripture to get in view what God says on the issues of divorce and 
uh, remarriage. And so let's look at, look at the passage we looked at last week, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Let's look at this one first. This is what he says. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh, one flesh. Now that word, underline the word bonds, or that little two-word phrase, bonds with. In the King James translation, it says cleaves to his wife. Other translations say unite with or hold fast or join to or embraces. Now what this means is a man and a woman adhere to. They are glued to. It carries with it the idea of things that are glued together in a permanent bond that stick together, bond together in a permanent fashion. Uh, It's like God, have you ever made a mistake with super glue? Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fingers? Yeah, it, it's like, uh, it, that's the picture. It's like God, this word for bonding and cleaving means that God, when he brings a man and woman together as husband and wife, when they, when they come together in marriage, he superglues them together. He superglues their souls together, and they become one flesh. A better illustration uh, might be um, uh, welding, metal welding. I worked in a machine shop through college. It was a great motivator to continue in college. And, um, but uh, the picture here, in, when and two pieces of metal are welded together, uh, two pieces of metal are brought together and, uh, and the, an electric arc is formed by the welder uh, and takes the two pieces with some filler material, usually a welding rod, or we use these big spools of welding wire uh, when we would uh, weld. And, and as that arc uh, connects, the two pieces of metal are melted at the point of the weld and the filling material, and they are made one new piece of metal. Almost impossible to tear apart. You cannot do it cleanly at all. So just so, when God brings a man and woman together in marriage, he welds them together. He intends for this to be permanent. God created marriage to be permanent. That's what he's saying. One of the things that he's saying in Genesis 2, 24. Now, have you ever tried to pull apart something that was super glued? You ever tried to pull apart? If you, if you, if you did it with your fingers, you found it didn't work really good. You know, flesh comes off. It's painful. It's, it's, it can be it's painful and dangerous. Um, it hurts. That's one of the reasons that divorce hurts so terribly. It was never intended by God and never intended by those of us who have experienced divorce. And you know that, that sense of, feel like part of my soul's been ripped away. Well, it has. It doesn't come apart cleanly. It's, um, it's a painful thing. So God created marriage to be permanent. Now, there's a second passage that speaks to this issue. It is the uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 uh, verses 1 through 4. Now, let me read this for you. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, he goes and becomes another man's, uh, she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house. Or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled. 
because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, what in the world does this say and what in the world does this mean? Well, we have here in the book of Deuteronomy... Moses, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, uh, writing and, and, and communicating a long sermon to the people of God as they are becoming a people and following, uh, following him. And suddenly the issue of divorce is raised and acknowledged in this passage. Now, this does, the point here is not that divorce is permitted. It is acknowledged. God was acknowledging through Moses that the culture of the day had deteriorated to the place uh, that men were divorcing their wives frequently and casually. Frequently and casually. And it was as easy as in the culture, let me, I don't, you burned the toast, we're divorced. Here's your paper, you're out of here. And, and women had no way of protecting themselves, making a living. They were little more than property in those days. It was a bad, bad scene. And it was happening all over uh, the place. And so when men would become displeased with their wives and divorce them, they'd be cast aside. God, through the writings of Moses here, is actually trying to inhibit this action by forbidding the remarriage to a former wife that had been married to another man. This passage is more about remarriage. And in this specific situation, if a man divorces his wife and she marries another man who divorces her or dies, she and her first husband are not allowed by the Lord to remarry. Again, this was intended by God to deter the incidence and the frequency and the casual uh, atmosphere of divorce. So here's the principle. Here's the principle. Don't be so quick to divorce and don't be so quick to assume that you're allowed to remarry because God created marriage to be permanent. Now, to understand, remember, all that God says and and teaches on an issue, we need to look at all that He says in the Scripture. So let's go to a third key passage. Ready? It is Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Malachi chapter 2 verses 13 through 16. Now, this, this, quest, this passage raises the question, what does God think of divorce? Let me read it for you. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Here's the reason. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Underline that word covenant in your Bible. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. I want to go back to that word covenant. God considers 
the marriage relationship a covenant relationship. Pastor Tim Keller in his great book on this same subject writes about two kinds of relationships. They're really pretty much only two and we have them. There are uh, consumer relationships and there are covenant relationships. Consumer relationships are relationships that we enter into and we see the other friend or even a marriage partner as kind of a vendor. And as long as they are, uh, we are getting from them what pleases us, we stay in the relationship. But if at some point we no longer get from them what we desire from them, then we move on to a better vendor. It is a consumer relationship. It happens in friendships. It happens uh, with, with marriages. In our culture today, our culture today has defined marriage as a consumer relationship. But a covenant relationship is not a relationship that uh, says, I'm going to stay with you uh, as long as I get from you what I want or need. It is a committed relationship that says, I am entering into this to see that you get what you need and that I invest in you. You see, our culture, unfortunately, has defined love as an emotion and has defined it as not only an emotion but a romantic emotion, romantic feelings. And, uh, you know, our emotions are just... We can't, have you ever tried to command an emotion? Remember when you was a kid, you were afraid of something, and, and your dad said, oh, come on. He said, but I'm afraid. He said, and he said, don't be afraid. Well, that took right care, that took care of it right there, didn't it? He commanded that emotion. Don't be afraid. No, no, no. You don't, you, we can't command emotions. They come and go. We have to deal with them. Well, in our culture, we believe that love is an emotion, a romantic emotion. And is there romance in, in love? Yes. Is there passion in love and in marriage? Yes. Who wants a, who wants a marriage devoid of ro- romance and devoid of passion? No one. No one. Nor does God want you to have a marriage devoid of passion and romance. But what he's saying here is this. Our passion does not maintain our commitment. Our commitment, our covenant maintains our passion. In a, in a, in a, uh, we have defined love as, as, a, as a romantic feeling, but God defines love as benevolent action. Write that down. God defines love as a benevolent Action, benevolent behaviors, positive behaviors. Love is a verb. It is not a noun. Love is, a, is an act. It is not an emotion. Jesus did command us to love one another. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he turned to husbands and he commanded husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a command. You can't command a feeling. God never commands an emotion. He commands benevolent behavior. Covenant relationships uh, are, are entered into uh, with one another and with God. And their intended covenants were always permanent. Permanent. When a marriage ceremony goes on uh, in, in our culture, in the Christian world, uh, couples come and they do two things. First of all, there's a set of questions asked them. They stand facing the pastor, the minister, and he says, Will you? And will you? And there's some questions about... Uh, covenant love and behavior. Now, they face and speak to the minister, but he is representing God. They are, not, they are not answering those questions to one another. They answer them to God. Yes, I will. They make a covenant with God. 
And then after the covenant with God is made, they exchange rings and hold hands and look into each other's eyes and they exchange those vows to one another. There's a commitment to God and a commitment to each other, a covenant with God and a covenant with each other. And he super glues their souls together. Now, our culture says, oh, marriage, you can't be married because we all know that romantic feelings are going to wane. And then when they're over, you're just caught in marriage. No, 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 no. The commitment maintains the passion. That's the way it works. The commitment. So what, what keeps you there? The vows keep you there. You see, we don't keep our promises so much as our promises keep us. We don't so much make our promises as our promises make us before God. What will sustain you when things aren't good? Your vows. The covenant. The continuous commitment to behave in a benevolent fashion toward one another. Fuels and refuels the passion. It's a covenant relationship. It is intended to be permanent. So why does God hate divorce? He says here in this passage in Malachi that it is a breaking of the covenant, a breaking of faith of the covenant. And he describes a a divorce as a man covering himself with violence. Three ways it breaks faith between us and God, causing spiritual pain and struggle. It breaks uh, faith of the covenant between husband and and wife. It is is an attempt to un-one what God has won'd. And it is incredibly painful, but it's intended to be permanent. It is a breaking of faith between parents and children, he says here. Uh, Over coffee one day, you know, we think, well, people have told me this, Pastor, you know, I I know the kids, but, you know, we're going to divorce, and, you know, but kids are resilient, they'll get over it. One afternoon, a, a man who joined our church years ago was had a cup of coffee with me just to get to know me a little better. And I told him my story. I said, well, tell me your story. And he was just telling me where I was born and raised. And, and he just kind of going through and just kind of as an offhand statement, he said, and when I was 14, my parents divorced. And, and he just froze. And he got very emotional and he began to weep. He was 39 years old. This is 25 years later. They're not going to get over it. They don't get over it. Don't kid yourself. It is a breaking of faith with God, with our spouses, and with our, and with our kids. So, so we've seen here that God makes us one flesh. He's given a deterrent to divorce and remarriage in Deuteronomy. And he's told us that he hates the violence that divorce does to his children as well as to uh, the culture, that it is a covenant relationship. He intends it to be permanent. In fact, making the covenant relationship helps it remain permanent. It's not all you do, but it's the big thing that we, that we do. But then there's another passage here that I want us to see. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 10. Verses 3 through 10. Jesus here has ta- talked about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. He repeated that teaching in a longer passage in Matthew 19. One day some, some of the religious leaders 
came and confronted Jesus and they wanted to trap him and they trapped him with some questions about divorce. Here's what it says. Some Pharisees approached him to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And they were trying to trap Jesus. There were two prominent rabbinical schools in the Jewish faith of the day. There was the school of the, um, the prominent rabbi Hillel and their uh, ethical interpretation on this issue was this. You can divorce for any reason whatsoever. There was also the rabbinical school of the, uh, of the great rabbi Shammai. And their position was divorce is only allowed in cases of sexual immorality. Now, knowing human nature, which of those schools do you think was the most popular in the day? Yeah, Hillel. So he, they, knew, they thought they could trap him. So they, if Jesus had said, well, yes, you can divorce for any reason, then they could say he was denying the teaching of the Old Testament, uh, the teaching of Moses and the deterrent. If he had said, uh, no, the law of Moses says you may not, then he might become less popular with the people. But Jesus never went for it. I mean, he just, he just he, here's, here was his answer. Wrong question. You know, that's a legitimate answer when people ask you two questions that don't make good sense. You don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to acknowledge the premise of the questions. He says, wrong question. You're looking for a loophole, he said. Um, and that's, that's the wrong question for us believers too. Are there loopholes? Is there a loophole? Can I get out of this somehow and still be okay with God and with, with people? It's the wrong question. Jesus went back to the principle of marriage in Genesis 2.24, uh, and here's what he says. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, cleave to his wife, be bonded to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. He says, go back to the principle. One man, one woman for life, God says. Well, they ask him, well, why then, in verse 7, why did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? Well, Jesus replied, you're misusing the Scriptures. He says, Moses permitted Notice the quick change. They said command. Jesus said permitted. He wouldn't let them get away with saying that, that God had commanded through Moses that divorce must be the case. He's basically saying the Bible permitted divorce because we have hard hearts. God understands that we develop hard hearts and there's some terrible uh, situations. But he's, he is not here uh, granting permission. He is... He is uh, challenging us about the hardness of our hearts. He said, God gave you an inch, but you want to take a mile. That's not the point. So Jesus goes on to talk with them about this, and he says very clearly in verses 8 and 9, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He's saying that choosing divorce is committing adultery except in the case of sexual immorality. Apparently, this is one action that unwinds what God has made one. It so violates the marriage covenant. 
So what about remarriage in this situation? Well, it appears that the innocent party is free to remarry. Uh, it's questionable he's about uh, the, uh, the uh, guilty party, so to speak, uh, in the, um, the marriage. seems that he prohibits it. He says it's the equivalent of adultery. He's basically silent on remarriage of the innocent party. And remember, we just need to be careful about arguments from silence. But knowing the grace of God... Uh, I think that's probably uh, the case. There's a fifth passage. Let's look at it really quickly. Ready? Here we go. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, verses 12, 13, and 15. The Apostle Paul is writing, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. I command the married, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. Verse 12, But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. If we choose to divorce for hardness of heart, not for the uh, desertion or sexual immorality on the part of the spouse, it's best to remain unmarried or be reconciled to our spouse, he's saying here. Uh, What if I'm married to an unbeliever? He says, stay married. Uh, What if the unbelieving spouse leaves me, deserts me? Well, then, then you let them leave and you're not bound, he says here. And it's very significant to me that the Bible doesn't even ask, what if the believing husband or wife deserts their believing spouse? They're, that's not to ever to be the case. It is not to be the case. Um, so I've said all that to say, summarize some things. You ready? Number one, God joins us together as husbands and wives to make us one flesh, and He intends for that to last for a lifetime. Number two, in Deuteronomy, God, through the writing of Moses, acknowledged that people were divorcing and gave a deterrent to it, uh, prohibiting remarriage to a former spouse who had been married and divorced from another person in the meanwhile. Number three, God loves people who have been divorced, but He hates divorce because of the violence and pain it unleashes on people and the culture. Number four, divorce is permitted, not necessarily preferred or never commanded by the Bible in cases of sexual immorality and desertion. Number five, God never commands divorce. Instead, prefers healing and reconciliation even in cases of sexual immorality and desertion. Now, some would say, but pastor, what about these kind of deals where uh, a husband is abusing his wife, is beating his wife, that kind of thing? I think that's a form of desertion. A husband, no doubt, has abandoned the marriage covenant at that point. No. If you're, being, if you're being abused, move out today. Don't, do, don't, 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 no, 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 no. Don't keep, don't put yourself in danger. Um, it is a form of desertion. 
a husband has abandoned the covenant relationship of loving his wife as Christ loved the church, loving her as his own body, and and, and laying down his own life for her. No, that's the opposite of that. It it unwinds apparently what God has made has made one. Uh, Number six, if you are married even to an unbeliever, you're to stay married. Number seven, one who divorces their spouse for reasons other than sexual immorality or desertion are not to remarry unless it is to their former spouse. Number eight, it seems that the blessing of remarriage of the innocent spouse is implied by these scriptures, but is not absolutely clear. Just be careful. You know, the Bible says in the great wisdom of God, he says, there are things that are permissible for you that may not be wise. So even if it is permissible according to God's will and ways in the scriptures, it's not, it may not be wise. Why does God say all these things? See, this is, this is hard because we, we have, this is hard to talk about because we, uh, divorce has been so painful to so many of us. So many, many, you know, many of you here have experienced the pain of divorce, and um, and God hates that pain for you. Why? Why would He give these instructions? Remember why? Because He is all knowing, and He is altogether wise. And He is completely good. In Him is no darkness at all. And He has your best interest at heart. He said all these things because He wants it to go well with you. And me. And our culture. Our community, our nation. And our world. He knows what's best. He knows what's best. Now... There are some of you here who have no hope for your marriage. It is so painful that you can see no option other than escape. Unless you're in danger, let me beg you to give it a little more time. All studies have shown, multiple studies have shown in our culture uh, that when... Marriages are in hard times, maybe are are not so happy even to the point of despair, I'm going to bail. If couples will stay together, that in five years it's good again. In no more than five years, it's good again. That's a way better journey to take than a lifetime of of, uh, divorce. Let me beg you to give God time. Let me beg you to redefine love, not as a romantic emotion, but as a commitment to benevolent behavior and begin to do good to your spouse at every opportunity. Act like you would if you did love them, if you did have romantic feelings, but keep doing their good. Keep serving them and you'll find your heart will begin to turn toward them and Lord willing, their heart will turn toward you. I don't want to be simplistic here. This is complex. And there's not time to go into, okay, here's how we keep it permanent. But let me just say, give God time. Give Him time. Um, now, some of you may be thinking now, 
I divorced and I divorced for all the wrong reasons. I did not do it God's way. I did it my way. I did it in a sinful fashion. And you may honestly be thinking in your heart, maybe for the first time, I did this for selfish, sinful reasons. And you're admitting, maybe for the first time, that what Jesus says is true. You're admitting that the the divorce for you was not just a mistake. It was a choice that was sinful. Well, I have good news for you. You're at a good place. For Jesus and His gospel are full of grace and what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And the way that we get to experience the grace is when we fully acknowledge the truth about ourselves. That's why God so frequently calls to us and says, Come to me. Acknowledge your sins to me. What are we doing when we are acknowledging our sin and agreeing with God that we have sinned? We are acknowledging the what? We're acknowledging the truth about ourselves and about God and about His standards. And it is then and only then that we fully experience the the grace. The grace. The freedom. You, You will stay bound as long as you keep justifying to yourself and your God any behavior that God calls sinful. But as soon as we acknowledge our sin to Him and we agree with Him, He says, enter into my mercy, enter into my grace. Yes, I will cleanse you, I will forgive you, I will restore you. He says, turn to me and with open arms I will welcome you back. So if you're facing these things for the first time, you're in a good place because God is a good God. Let's pray together. Pray with me. Why don't you take a moment? We've got uh, some unhurried, unrushed time here. Take a moment and just be honest with God. Say, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Lord, bring to mind the real condition of my heart, my life, my soul. And if you find that there's any sinful behavior in your past, maybe you divorced for all the wrong reasons, then tell him. Come clean with him. And he says, I am gracious and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the beginning of healing. It's the beginning of cleansing. There are those of you who are in marriages now that are unhappy. And you've been considering ending the marriage. Would you come to the Lord now and say, Lord, help me. If you want me to stay in this, I need your help. Grant me grace. Grant me strength. Help me to redefine love 
from romantic feelings to committed benevolent action, committed benevolent behavior toward my spouse. And grant me power to act in this fashion. Ask for his help to stay true to the promises you made to God and your spouse on your wedding day. Some of you are considering marriage. And you may have realized this morning, I'm all excited about this person, I just, but I just have the tingles. All I have is romantic feeling. And I'm not sure that I'm expecting it to last for a lifetime. Then ask the Lord to help you. Ask Him to show you. Ask Him to show you what a covenant relationship is and what the commitment to marriage is can and should be ask him to give you and your fiance or prospective fiance his wisdom and clarity on how to proceed Lord Jesus we need you for these things We need your help. Thank you for your amazing grace. We pray that by your grace and power that you would help us to center our hearts and our lives and our relationship on you and your gospel. That in you we might find the love and motivation and power to be and do in these marriages what you want us to be and do. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.